Matthew 15. Uh, just uh, Pastor Kenny talked a little bit, said one of my deacons was here. Uh, he's not just one of my deacons, he's a dear friend. Uh, he is a, uh, I, I don't, I, there's so much I could say about this guy, but <clears throat> l- let me just say this. I heard, I, I'm going to say as quickly as I can. Several years, about five years ago, I got a phone call. Actually, I got a phone call. I was set, set, sitting at the desk with, with his nephew. I get a phone call from his wife and said, you need to come to the hospital. David's sick. And I said, he's sick. He's the doctor. He's my cardiologist as well. And so I went, and he had been diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer that was in his brain and in his spine. This is not made up. He's a board-certified cardiologist. And so he went to the Cleveland Clinic. I had people from King's Daughters call me and say, you need to prepare for the worst. And we started to pray. And we... He, he, he came home, and he said, I'd like you to anoint me with oil. Now, I want you to understand something. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says, if you're sick, you call and ask for the elders to come. And so I said, well, Dr. Bush has always been very private. And I said, we're going to private. And I kept getting these phone calls. Can we come? Can we come? Can we come? And I asked him. He said, yeah. We had over 200 people gather to anoint this brother with oil and lay hands on him. That was five years ago. And there he sits today. You asked me, you asked me, you said, now how's that doctor who was sick? You asked me this yesterday. You said, how's that doctor who was sick? I said, how's he doing? He's preaching two times for me today. So here's what you got to know. When you look in the Bible, I always call him my Luke. When you look in the Bible... Luke is the only Gentile author in all of the Bible. And he was the physician that traveled with Paul. I'm going to give you a little Bible lesson. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, if you look in the King James Bible, it's attributed to Paul. It's not Paul, but it is. It's Luke who wrote it. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, Acts, and Hebrews. But when you look at this, how could, a, how could a Gentile know so much about Judaism? He was Paul's physician. He traveled with Paul. He preached. He wrote. And so that's why it's got Paul's voice, because he wrote like that. So let me tell you about this brother. This is not the sermon on David Bush. This doesn't come out of my preaching time, okay? But, but let, me te- let me tell you about this brother. He's got a wonderful family. He preaches, I mean an expository preaching, not, not imitation, real thing, line by line, verse by verse. You know what he does for a hobby? He does two things for a hobby. He works with our Christian school. He's a chairman of our school board. And he travels to Romania, has done this for more than 20 years, preaching and planting churches. That's what he does. I'm not joking with you. And so... If you, if you need a good cardiologist, one's going to pray for you, 
fine cardiologist, one, one that can preach for you. I told him, I said, listen, you don't ever have to put me in the hospital if you want to preach. I'll just let you preach, okay? <laughs> but brother, I love you. Thank you for coming down here. If you, when, you, when you pray, when you pray for those people who were, who were sick, you heard Bryce talk about those. Listen, God still does amazing things. He does amazing things. Dr. Bush has seen God's hand in his life. His father, his father, Ernie, who's with Jesus now, Ernie was an alcoholic. And when God saved him, he delivered him from that. And listen, the first moment that I met him, he gave me his testimony and would give his testimony all, anytime, anytime. So Dr. Bush has seen God's power in his life, in his family. And so when you pray for those people, pray for them and believe that God heals and delivers when everybody says there's no way this is going to happen. You say, I don't believe that. Board-certified cardiologists will tell you that because it happened to him. And so we praise God for that. Brother, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but that's what you get when you come down and hear me preach. Uh, all right. When my family, when we travel, when we travel every year, every year, uh, we go on a summer vacation, and I buy a pair of cheap sunglasses every year. And I buy cheap sunglasses because I always lose them, I always break them, I always step on them, I always whatever. And so one year I, I thought I was going to play a joke on my wife and I went and bought a pair of cheap sunglasses and I came in and I said, and it had a symbol on the side of it, a little circle symbol, and I came in and I told my wife, I said, you won't believe what I bought. She said, really? I said, yeah. I said, I spent $5 and I got a genuine pair of of oaky sunglasses. And she said, now what are those called? And I said, look at them, honey. Genuine oakies. I said, they didn't even know what they bought. They had at the flea market. And she said, okay. And she said, honey, I, 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 she tried to let me down soft. She said, honey, I think the real ones are called Oakleys. I said, that's not what they're called right there. It says Oakey. <laughs> so, though, <laughs> she, let, she tried to let me down soft, and she said, honey, you've been ripped off. And I said, no, I just paid $5 for a cheap pair of sunglasses. So, so a few years ago, I was standing in the line at the food fair, and I am cheap, and I saw, it, they said, two pair of sunglasses for $1.99. <laughs> this is them. They are the cheapest, most uncomfortable, unbreakable, cannot lose sunglasses. <laughs> but it's amazing what happens because these are an imitation pair of sunglasses. These are not good. They're not comfortable. They really don't block out the sunlight. And I've been trying to lose them for years. And I bought two pair of them and I still have both pairs to this day. You know what's amazing is we laugh about cheap sunglasses. But you know, cheap faith, imitation faith, 
that may look the part on the outside, but on the inside has no power, is not something to laugh about. You see, what the Bible teaches us is that God brings real change in life. And He brings this change by His power. And when we're, we're tempted to imitate that change in life, to bring about the, that change, just like the, the fruit of the Spirit, we're tempted to imitate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. We're tempted to imitate those things. When in reality, it's to be the fruit of the Spirit, that which the Spirit brings. Well, when we open the Scriptures, the placement of Scripture doesn't happen by chance. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's just walked on the water. He's just healed the lame. And then we come to this passage. Often what we find in Scripture is that Jesus does miraculous things and then He teaches. And, and so it's those miraculous things that verify, legitimize what it is that He's teaching. And so tonight I want to share with you three conditions of the heart that imitate the power of God. So these are conditions that Jesus exposes that imitate real change. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look together. Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to be, begin in verse 1. Matthew 15. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Matthew writes this, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you may have, have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we look to your word this evening, Lord, we pray that as we take seriously what it is that we read. And we, take, we pray, oh God, that as we have opened your word and we have heard from you, that we will submit to what it is that you, have, that you are calling us to. And that, Lord, we will experience genuine transformation that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is that first condition of the heart that imitates the power of God. The first one is this. It's a self-help heart, a religious heart that's not necessarily transformed by, that's not, not necessarily transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's possible to be religious. It's possible to pick yourself up and act better and act nicer and look the part on the outside while never experiencing the power of God in you. Now imagine, if you will, for a moment, that 
We live in a Christian war, uh, in a Christian society, still influenced by that. You may say, "Well, Pastor, there's evidence of that. What's no lo- that's no longer around." But in Appalachia, there's something that it's easy that's easy to be deceived by. A friend, uh, I know a fellow who wrote a book, and he he said it's it's easy to pastor in Appalachia because. Folks in Appalachia have some association with the Lord. And I would say that it's the exact opposite. Folks in Appalachia have a Christian vocabulary. They've been influenced by Christianity. They're able to walk, they're able to look the part, walking the walk at times, but never having been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friend, I would remind you that when we look to the Scriptures, the transformation that comes by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is not one that we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it's one that comes through the dynamic, divine work of Jesus Christ. I remember there used to be a fellow that, I, that used to come to every church service, Roscoe. He would come to every church service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Roscoe was always there. Roscoe, in our church, all those years ago, he would sit towards the back, and he always came with his wife, his daughter, and his grandson. Roscoe never missed a service. You know, we had lots of folks in our church that would often miss for one reason or another, but Roscoe never missed. Roscoe was a small man. He would always come dressed in a, in a, in a, in a suit, and he was always amazingly mannerly. Not one person could say anything bad about Roscoe. But the thing about Roscoe you had to know is that Roscoe didn't know the Lord. When you would go to Roscoe's house to talk to him about the Lord, Roscoe, I'll never forget his words. He would say, you know what? I've been a good man. I've provided for my family. I've taken care of my family. When, when, her, when his daughter's husband walked out, he said, they moved in with us. I've raised Cody, his grandson, like he was my own. He said, I'll never forget this. I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and if that's not good enough for God, I don't know what is. You know, the reality is Roscoe was a man who was, he was a man better than most of the men in our church. That's the truth. But I remember looking at Roscoe, and I said, Roscoe, all of those things, are not good enough to make you right with God. We, we witnessed to Roscoe over and over and over again, and Roscoe would name people. I'm better than him, and you know what? He was right. He didn't cheat on his family. He didn't run around. He didn't, he didn't cheat on his taxes even. Not everybody can say that. We're to render unto Caesar what's is Caesar's, but... Caesar's, never mind, let's just stick right here. Oh, thou temptest me. But you know, so what happened with Roscoe? Roscoe got the, one of the cruelest diseases that I know, Lou Gehrig's disease. Lou Gehrig's disease, I'm told, is a disease essentially where you become trapped in your own body, fully aware of everything going on around you, and you lose faculties. I remember that little boy, Cody, one day climbed up in his lap and he grabbed him, he grabbed his grandpa by his ears and he put his forehead to his and he said, Papa, won't you trust Jesus? And you know what? It was that which broke Roscoe and Roscoe came to faith in Christ. 
Folks, it's easy to be to experience a self-help display and never genuinely experience transformation that comes through the work of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible teaches us about the law. The Bible tells us that the law is not, to, it was not given to show people how to be right with God. The law is not a guide for your life, but rather the law is a spotlight for your sin. I want you to hold your spot here. And I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7. I want you to look with me, Romans 7, and look with me in verse 5. Romans 7, let's look together in verse 5. Paul writes this, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So notice what he tells us. He says that when we're saved, we're, we're delivered from the power of the law. The role of the law has already been served, and now we are to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the, the law is not to be a guide on how to live. The law is to be a spotlight on your sin. Let's look on. He continues on. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? In the original language, it's one word, meganoito. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law has said, you shall not covet, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desires, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Years ago, I told you I worked at, in, in, at, in the summertime, I worked at Columbia Gas, and it was a great job. Well, it was a great job because I had get there at 6 o'clock in the morning, i get on a tractor, get out with a weed eater, and I was listening, listening to cassette tapes. See, the cassette tape was like streaming, but it, anyway... And, and, and we were, re, this particular time, we were going to, I was going to be painting on a, on a lift. And I was walking through, the, walking through the, the plant with this lady, and, we were, and we were, she was going to take me to the job I was going to have to do, to do. And there was this big red button. And this big red button, was, it was an emergency button. And the, the whole purpose of this button was, it was a gas plant. And the whole purpose of the button, you hit the button and it blows the whole plant down. Not blows it up, not explode, but it evacuates all the lines so the plant won't expo explode. And so I'm walking through there one day, and for no reason other than just curiosity, I reach up and just smack that button. This is true. This is why they don't let teenagers work in gas plants. And she, she reached up and she grabbed that button and she pulled it out and she said, what are you doing? Honestly, I said, I have no idea. 
There was no logical reason for me to do that other than it was a big red button that everything about me said, do not touch, and I wanted to touch it with all that I had. You know, this is what the law does. The law provokes the flesh to sin. And the law, when it provokes the flesh to sin, the law reveals the condition of the human heart. So the law is not to show you how to live. The law is to reveal your sin. The law shows you the problem, and the problem is not your actions. You can look the part. This is why self-help Christianity is so deceptive, because you can look the part on the outside. But the issue is not the outside. The outside is just the outside is just a symptom of the bigger problem. The problem is not the action. You cannot covet. You cannot do all of those things. Just like Roscoe, you can you can be genuinely good from the assessment of everybody on the outside, and it still does not address the problem. This is why legalism is so deadly, and that's exactly why Jesus addresses this here. Because you can look the problem. You can, you can look the, pro, the part and never address the issue of the heart. Self-help, performance-based Christianity is deadening to the soul. Because self-help, performance-based Christianity tells you you're okay because I've checked off all of the boxes. I don't cuss. I don't drink. I don't run around on my wife. I don't look at pornography. And so I'm okay. You can do all of those things and still be dead inside. And so the first condition of the heart that imitates the power of God is the self-help heart, a religious heart that's never been transformed. Do you look the part on the outside and never experience the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The second condition of the heart that imitates the power of God is the offended heart, that God's word offends and it doesn't correct. Look what it says. Matthew 15, look with me in verse 10. So he continues on. When he called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, that defiles a man. Then, he, then his disciples came to him and said, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Would you grab your pen or your pencil underline that? They were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leaders leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. So re re replacing the priority of God's Word with the tradition of man happens when we misunderstand God's Word. Because notice what they're doing. Their issue with Jesus was an issue of Him keeping their traditions. Their issue with Jesus was not His handling of the law, His, his, 
his teaching with the law, their issue with Jesus was what he did with their traditions. The Babylonian Talmud is volume after volume after volume after volume after volume of rabbinical teaching concerning the law. What is, what is right? What is wrong? Years ago, on Easter, I was, uh, I was serving on staff at a church, and on Easter, I get a phone call. We had one service getting ready to have the second service, and I was stepping into the baptistry, and, I, and one of the deacons came to me, and, and they said, Matt, your house is on fire. Well, that'll get your attention. And so I said, all right. And so uh, the, the, the pastor was Pastor Kenny, and, and not this Pastor Kenny, another Pastor Kenny, and he said, I'll take care of it. Go home. And so Chrissy had already gone home because her family was coming over for, for, for Easter dinner. And when I got there, I, when I got there, I, as, I clo- as I got close to the house, I could see the road was blocked off. There were police cars sitting everywhere and fire, in, fire trucks sitting everywhere. And so I did what any redneck would do. I drove up into the grass and the house is beside of me and I drove to my house. And I got there, and thankfully the house was intact, and the and the the fire the firemen were rolling up the hoses when we got there. There was no problem. What had happened was a burner block on our stove had caught on fire. It went bad, and it smoked up the house. It it looked worse than it really was. Well, we replaced our stove, and the the stove that we had had a Shabbat setting on it. So you in theory. Before 6 o'clock on Friday, you would be able to put your food in the oven, set all the things on the oven, and flip the, the Sabbath setting, and then it would cook without you doing anything to it. As absurd as that sounds, that's exactly how, the, how all of these traditions work. That there's ways not to observe the law, but let's be honest, it's the, the purpose was not how to observe the law, but the purpose was to lower the standard of the law to that which is obtainable by men. That misses the point. Because the purpose of the law isn't to show you how to live. It isn't to show you how to conduct your life. The purpose of the law is to hold you guilty before a holy God, driving you to your need of a Savior. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, he said the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so when we look at the law as a set of check marks of the way we're to conduct our life, we miss the very point. And so as we, and, and what happens though is that we get easily offended. Well, that's not how I would do it. That's not the way that I see it. When in reality, the point is not The point is not competition or comparison with brothers and sisters in Christ, but rather the point is to be driven to the point of death, spiritual death and dependence on a risen Savior and recognizing that we are who we are, not by what we have done, not by our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but rather we are who we are because we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and we stand completely and totally in the grace of God. There is nothing, no merit that I have on my own. But you see, the offended heart looks at God's Word as a checklist. The offended heart looks at what God says and then 
immediately dismisses it. You've had that experience just like I have. When you're at home and you get that knock on the door. And you open the door and there's usually a younger lady in a long skirt. And then there's an older, uh, older lady or two. And then there's a guy that he's just happy he's on the planet. And they always ask the same question. Could we share with you what the Bible teaches? Well, that's my favorite interaction on a Saturday morning. Yes, I'd love for you to share with me what the Bible teaches. Only if I can ask you some questions afterwards. We would love for you to ask us some questions. And so, <clears throat> they start to ask questions, and then they want to give you your ma their magazine. And you've got to remember something. With it. When a Jehovah's Witness comes to your house, it never matters what the Bible says. That's, that's true. It only matters what's the, what the Watchtower and Awake magazine say the Bible says, because you've got to understand, a Jehovah's Witness is not allowed to interpret the Bible on their own. They can only obey what the Watchtower and Awake magazine says because that's the voice of the prophet. The people behind that are the voice of the prophet. So it doesn't matter what you say. And so after we go through the whole thing, I ask them one question. How good do you have to be to go to heaven? Well, she said, we don't believe in heaven. They don't. And I said, so how good do you have to be to be with God? And she said, you have to be really good. I said, that's right. How good? And I said, are you good enough? She said, no. I said, do you know anybody good enough? She said, I do. I said, so you know one of, because remember, they only believe that 144,000 are going to be with God, and then they maybe will be resurrected. The others. <clears throat> she, and I said, so do you know one of the 144,000? She said, oh, I do. I said, that's interesting. <clears throat> I said, but you know, some, Jesus said something that's baffling to me. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, you will be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And she said, well, that just means he just meant that you need to be as good as you possibly can. I said, did Jesus have a vocabulary problem? Could he have not said that if that's what he meant? I said, that's not what he said. He said that you have to be as good as God himself. And she said, it's time for us to go. And I said, well, I'd love to walk with you. Because what I saw was the younger one was listening. Church, the standard of heaven is not as good as you can be. The standard of heaven is the very perfection of God. And the Bible tells us that the law reveals to us not that we're bad, but the Bible tells us that we are desperately wicked and above all things deceitful. The law reveals to us our condition, and that's its very point. It is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It is not to show you how to be right with God. It is to show you how wicked and vile you are before a holy and righteous God and leaving you totally destitute so that you are absolutely dependent on a Savior. How could anyone be as good as God himself? 
the imputation of the righteousness of the Son of God is how. You see, the Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That when I, when I repent of my sins and by faith turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive what he has done on Calvary's cross, what happens is a divine transaction in which my sin is given to him, is placed on him, and his righteousness is imputed to me, and I stand before him in his own righteousness. I teach a class at the Bible college called um, Principles of Bible Study. I always tell the students, if you can make it through this class, you can make it through every other class in the Bible college. Can I get an amen, Bryce? <clears throat> but this class really, to be honest with you, does not originate with me. It originated, originated with my dear professor who's with Jesus, Dr. Paul Fink. And he used to ask us a question. We always loved Dr. Fink, and we always wanted to impress Dr. Fink. And so we would ask that question, how good do you have to be to go to heaven? And so as he would go around the room and he would ask all the young preacher boys, how, do you, how good do you have to be to go to heaven? We would all answer with great pride, you don't have to be good at all. And without fail, he would always say, wrong. He said, if you were to stand before God, and this is a scene that will never happen, but if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I allow you into my heaven, what would you say? And every preacher boy in the room had their reason. Nothing of my own I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Wrong. I have no righteousness of my own. I've asked Jesus into my heart. Wrong. Then what would you say? He said, according to what the Bible says, if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you could look at God and you can say, because I am as good as you. Church, that's what it means to have, the impute, have Christ's righteousness imputed to you. Justification does not mean just as if I'd never sinned. Justification is a legal declaration whereby God declares the sinner to whom Christ's righteousness has been given to be as good as he. So when we look to the pages of Scripture, what do we find? We find offense. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said that the gospel would set a father against his son, a mother against her daughter, a fa the father-in-law against his son-in-law. Why? Because the gospel cuts to the very the very core of who we are, and it says, you are not good enough, but Jesus is. We get offended because it offends our pride. We are not good enough. It's a condition of the heart. That condition is a self-help condition. We want to make ourselves good enough, and so I'm going to lift myself up by my bootstraps, never experiencing the power of God to bring about transformation. There's the condition there of the offended heart. That when we look to the Word of God, we find a standard by which we are to live and not a, not a, not, not a law that kills us and brings us to total dependence on a Savior. 
But there's this final condition. And this condition is that of a deceived heart. Where we go through conduct reformation and not inward transformation. Look what he says. Matthew 15, look in verse 15. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whoever enters, whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? Let me help you with this. So they believe that there is, in order to be right with God, you had to observe the law and only you had to wash your hands before you ate. You had to make sure that you observed all of the rituals. And I want you to notice what Jesus said. He said, don't you get it? What goes in your mouth goes in your stomach and then it goes out the body. How could that make you right? He goes on. He said, but verse 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So there's all these things that we go through that we, that we believe that makes us holy. When in fact, none of those things make us holy. It is a heart that is transformed by the work of Jesus Christ that makes us holy and is in the process of making us holy. You know, when you look in the Bible, we often say that salvation... Dr. Henry Ironside was asked by a student who did not recognize him. They said, Sir, are you saved? And Dr. Ironside, the great Bible teacher, replied, I have been, I am being, and I will be. We often think about salvation as I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. But actually, when we study closely with just, or sanctification, sanctification has a positional aspect. It actually has a preparational aspect, doesn't it, Bryce? It has, he learned this in that class. It has a preparational aspect that God does a work before we come to Christ to prepare us as He draws us. It has a positional aspect that when I stand before Christ, before the Lord, I am holy. God sets me apart as holy. It has a progressive aspect. He is making me holy. That's what we often talk about. That's spiritual growth. And then it has an, a, a, a a final aspect, and that he's going to make me holy, that my position as holy, set apart to God, and my practice are going to be aligned. You say, well, pastor, that is speaking about justification. No, no, no. If you look closely, sanctification also is not just preparational it's all, and, and positional, but it's also progressive and will be ultimate. There's an aspect to that at all. But when we look to the pages of Scripture, he tells us that the issue 
is the issue of the human heart. And making us holy is not something that we can do. It is something that God does in us and through us. And the, and the heart deceives as it is something that we can do on our own. That it's something that we're able to produce. That somehow we have, we're just looking the part. We're making sure that everybody acts the part. That they cross their T's and, and dot their I's. When in reality there is no inward transformation. It shouldn't be lost on us that as we look to the pages of Scripture, we recognize that as Jesus demonstrates His power, His ability to walk on water, His ability to raise, to, to, to heal the lame, His, his amazing power to feed the 5,000, He did it all to bring us to this point that the heart is wicked and deceitful. It desires to help, it, help itself and pick itself up. It, desire, it is easily offended when it's cut to the very core and to the very pride, to our pride. And it's deceived when we believe that we just act the part and not experience transformation. So the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God not to shine a spotlight on our sin, but not to leave us broken. You may, you may look at this, at what we've looked at tonight, and you may say, you know, I, I, I see myself there. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's easy for us, just like the Pharisees, as Jesus said, to make ourselves twice as much the son of hell, binding heavy burdens on those around us. You remember what Jesus said about the teaching of the Pharisees? He said, they sit in Moses' seat. He said, what they teach, do, but don't do as they do. His issue with them was not what they taught. His issue was how they lived. They came to the wrong conclusion. How about you? Are you experiencing the light burden of Jesus? Are you doing everything that you can to act the part and never genuinely experiencing the transformation of Jesus Christ, the power that comes? You know, it would be an awful shame to try to be good enough and recognize that nothing that you can do, no, on your best day, you're never going to be good enough. The only way that any of us will ever be good enough is by what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Do you know him? Have you experienced that genuine transformation? Let me pray for you. Father, we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful, Lord.